Hello, everyone.、Uh, welcome to the weekly show of What is School for? And this entire live streaming show is inspired by my interview with Sais Golden, my all-time favorite thought leader. And on this show, we interview leading educational professionals, entrepreneurs, business owners, parents, and students. They come here. We discuss. Debate and disrupt education, but the goal is to really future-proof the next generation. And today, I am—you can see my excitement. I can barely contain my excitement. And we are have the one and only Blake Bowles on the show to talk about his new book. I'm going to share my screen in a second. Why are you still sending your children or kid? To school, I just love this title. Very, very powerful. And、uh, we are going to discuss what are some alternative、uh, schooling options if you think the traditional high school, middle school, college is not working out for your children.、Uh, we are going to give you a range of options.、Uh, we are going to also discuss, you know, as parents, how you should. Do parenting in the twenty first century. So you are going to walk away from this one hour interview with a much deeper understanding of alternative school, the options, and how you should show up as a parent in the twenty first century. And just in case you don't know who this amazing role model and author is, Ah、uh, Blake is a speaker, an educator, and is an author for quite a few best selling books. Including the art of self-directed learning, which I have a copy, but I don't know where it is. And uh, and uh, better than college and college without high school. And Blake's work has been featured in New York Times, BBC Travel, Fox Business, TEDx, USA Today, and Huffington Post, Wall Street Journal, and so many other places. And Blake and I were actually connected in person. Almost, I feel like a decade ago, and so at the time, I think I just gave birth to our older son, or I was pregnant, and Blake was invited to give a talk at Philadelphia Free School, and where he was talking about self-directed learning. And since since that day, I became a fan. Fan. I was like, oh, I love this book. I love your work. Very good, and、uh, I loved reading the book. And has been playing such an important role、uh, in my journey as an alternative educator and as a mom. So really honored to have you on the show, Blake. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. You are so welcome. So first, let me share the screen. And by the way, everyone, we are live on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Periscope, Periscope, and on YouTube. So let me know in the comment section where you are joining us live from. Uh, social media wise and geographically speaking, I love love my global community. And let me share my screen real quick so you can see the title, the cover of Blake's book. And do you want to add anything、uh, to my very brief、uh, introduction, Blake? <laughs> you said that I am a best-selling author. None of my books are actually best-selling. Hey, in my mind. You know what? You're a fan of them. I'm a fan of them, and a handful of other people are a fan of them. So that's good enough for me. So this is a new book, and why are you still sending your kids to school? I actually finished reading the book myself. It's such a great book, and so is this a place where people can go and get a copy of this book, or on Amazon? They can go to Amazon, or they can go there, BlakeBowles dot com, and that's got all. It's got everything about me. 
That's the, the awesome. one step. Yeah. Step. Yep. <laughs> so I will also make sure throughout our interview to share the book information on the lower third on the screen. So share with us, Blake, you know, you have been in this uh, alternative education space for quite a few decades. And so share with us what inspired you to be on this journey? Well, I was not alternatively educated myself. I wasn't homeschooled. <laughs> I went to California public schools and I was a good student. I got good grades and I did what good students do. They go straight to college to study something very impressive. And so I went to UC Berkeley to study astrophysics because I thought I wanted to be a scientist. And it took me a few years of studying physics and math to realize that I probably don't want to be a research scientist, but maybe I wanted to be a high school science teacher. And that's when I stumbled into this world of alternative education. I, I read a book by John Taylor Gatto uh, who was this award-winning New York City public school teacher. And after 30 years, he quit teaching and said he no longer wanted to make a living hurting kids anymore. And his, the, those words just leapt off the page. And I was, uh, I was captivated. And I devoured his book. And I devoured all these other books that introduced me to homeschooling and unschooling and radical alternative schools like democratic free schools. And... That's it. I knew within a few months that this was the beginning of the end for me. And I ended up designing my own major at age 21 to study alternative education full time. Yeah. And so I ended up with the least marketable degree that UC Berkeley has ever offered in alternative schooling and science education. And uh, yeah, I worked in the outdoor education field for a few years before getting involved with a place called Not Back to School Camp, which is a summer camp for teenage unschoolers and then starting my company on school adventures. And I've taken self-directed teenagers on trips around the world for more than a decade now. Wow, that's really amazing. You know, as we continue our interview, you guys will really get to know Blake and his amazing ballet of work. We have already more than 20 people join us live, everyone. And let me know, we have people from Brazil, from Australia, from the US, let me know the countries you are joining us live from. So let's talk about this new book. I wish I had a, a physical copy to show you guys. So it's a quite controversial topic, <laughs> you know, right? So like, are you using this as a metaphor or you literally meant what you wrote? I, I literally mean those words. And this is not a book that's for everyone. I'm not saying no one should go to school, I'm saying, for parents who see that their kids are very clearly not doing well in school, they're they're struggling there. It's not just a temporary thing, and it's very likely that it's it's school which is the problem, not just the kid or or again like a temporary social situation. For those parents, I, it's a very genuine question: Why are you still sending your kids to school? And by that, I mean why are you con continuing to force them to go to school? Uh, and that's just the normal thing that parents everywhere do. And, and so this is a book that kind of attacks that assumption that you have to send your kids to school in order, them, in order for them to become successful or functional adults uh, because it's simply not true. And there's, I have tons of anecdotal uh, evidence that supports that. And then there's a lot of research evidence that supports that too. And so I'm bringing together all of the best arguments for why you shouldn't keep forcing your kid to go to school if school this. is clearly not serving them. 
I love this. And we are definitely going to dive into some of those research that you mentioned. And I'm, I'm just curious and uh, like, you know, you are quite forceful in the alternative education space. Have you ever received any tension between your message and some of the traditional educators? I ask this question because since I have become a lot more outspoken about the traditional education, especially some of the problems, like I started to receive some very unpleasant, let me put it that <laughs> way, like emails or social media interactions. Oh no. And uh, yeah, has this ever happened to you? I'm just curious. I have managed to receive almost no hate mail in my life, which I'm, I'm proud of. Maybe that'll start soon. We'll find out. We'll but, see after this title. <laughs> I mean, I, again, I think it's important to say that, that conventional schools and public schools uh, should exist. And I'm not saying everyone should quit school or that all teachers are bad people or that parents who think that sending their kids to regular school are bad people necessarily. Again, it's just our, our cultural norm. And in the book, I take uh, some time to describe how the school system came about in the United States. And long story short, it serves two really important functions today. The first one is it's free childcare. That's not a very flattering way to put it, but as the coronavirus epidemic is showing us, parents really struggle when they don't have a place to send their kids for mm -hmm. seven hours a day and they need to get some work done. And so, yes, school, is a place where we send kids because we don't really know what to do with them otherwise. Uh, I could talk more about that, but the second reason that schools are important is that they have evolved over the 20th century to serve a, a social welfare function. For many mm -hmm. kids, going to a public school is the only place where they'll have a warm, safe environment, you know, a reliable meal, and adults who care about them. And so we can't just get rid of public schools, definitely not. But that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of kids who are in regular schools, both public and private right now, who are not being served well by those schools and who really could thrive more in an alternative setting. Oh, I love this. I love this. And uh, so I, I want to kind of follow up on this and talk about unconventional uh, schooling. And in your book, you did such a great uh, job, you know, illustrating some of the very unique features of an unconventional school. So I want to dive into that a little bit. So I have this long list here, and the one you talked about is no standardized exams. So why is that important? And share with us the damaging effect of standardized exams on our children. So Seth Godin writes a lot about this. You and I are both a fan of, of Seth's work. and. The short answer is standardized tests mostly serve school systems. They don't serve mm -hmm. students. And it's a handy way to figure out how much money to send to a certain school or how to compare one group of kids to another. But really, it's not a useful thing for kids. And that's what education should be about. It's helping kids you know, grow up, gain skills, become better people. And standardized tests, by and large, I, I don't think are that useful for uh, for kids, the kind, that, and I'm talking about the really, um, you know, I'd say the K through 12 standardized tests that are pretty uh, non-consequential to a kid's uh, trajectory. Now, there are standardized tests like the SAT or the ACT, which are used for different reasons, and there is there is some utility in those tests. And so, I'm not completely anti all standardized tests. 
I mean, you talk about K twelve. I mainly works. Yeah, you know, I'm a professor dropout. I call myself like that. But I mainly work in the higher education space. And the same thing, you know, students they hate exams so much. And I have so many students who scored perfectly on, a, like, for example, interpersonal communication exam, but they have no idea, you know, how to communicate interpersonally in real life. So I, I really agree with that. So another one you talk about is no grades and no assessment. And uh, so are, so how, how are we evaluating the students or is that even necessary? If there's no grading and no sort of you know, evaluation, what do we do? Well, uh, on one level, it's not necessary to evaluate students. And if you're learning something for learning's sake, then you know, why does anyone need to evaluate it? On another level, if we're talking about young people going into college and career, then yes, colleges and employers need to be able to compare a student to you know, uh, other people who are trying to get a limited number of spots. And so uh, grades are helpful for doing that second function. Uh, mm -hmm. But they're not necessary today to get into college or to get a good job. I know lots of kids who have never received a letter grade in their life, and they're still able to get the jobs that they want. Getting into college, maybe they will need to take the SAT. Maybe they will need to take some community college courses. And so there are grades there. But you can spend most of your career as a student never getting graded or formally assessed and then at the very end, you can jump through the hoops necessary to enter the kind of conventional higher education and employment worlds. And so yeah. again, I'm not saying that grades are never useful, just that for a lot of kids, you don't need to do it to them full time for 12 years. Mm. Yeah, I feel like, you know, a consequence of doing that for 12 years and maybe even 16 years is that learning has become uh, equivalent to grade, right? Like score, that's why I want to learn. I want to go to a class, not so much the intrinsic, you know, motivation. So I love that. And another uh, key feature you talk about for unconventional schooling is mixed age model. And uh, I, you know, quite a few un uh, alternative schools, they have this model. And I use this at my own school, and but it's definitely not commonly practiced at many, many schools in the US and globally speaking. So explain to us why mixed age is so good. John Taylor Gatto, the same guy who got me into this field in the first place, uh, wrote that it's absurd to keep kids together with only other people their own age, plus or minus one year. It, and that's truly the best explanation. It is absurd. There is no other time in life that that happens or that we imagine that people should be grouped just because of their age, not because of their abilities or their interests. And so I, I just completely reject that on its face. And again, it's something that schools do for their own convenience. It's much easier to organize a large group of students when you can cut them up into these little chunks based on age or grades. But as anyone who's been through school knows, that's not the best way to do it. You shouldn't be grouped with other people your age. You should be grouped with people who want to do the same thing that you want to do, who want to work with you. Uh, in the same way, that's that's what adult careers are all about. <laughs> Imagine if we tried to or you know build companies, but only let teams form around people of the same age. That would be ridiculous. 
<laughs> it's so true. It is so true. You know, in my work, I have never only worked with people who are exactly my age group, and it doesn't make sense. And I, I don't know if you have encountered this, Blake. And for me, like I noticed many of my students, they have such a hard time communicating with people like younger than them and older than them. And they don't know how to be really good at intergenerational like communication. They they are good at talking to their peers, but they haven't really practiced with talking, you know, across uh, age group. So I, I love that. Yeah. So is that a, like a common practice you see in many uh, alternative schools? Do they do they all use a mixed age model? Yeah, most of the alternative schools that I write about in the book are completely age mixed, which means you'll have a school that goes from K to 12, or sometimes they'll just be for adolescents. And so it'll go from age 13 to 18. But there are no age delineated classrooms. There, there's there's no separation like that. Everyone hangs out together in the same common areas. Everyone is held to the same expectations. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just catching up on everyone's comments. Thank you so much for all the comments. And if you guys have any question uh, re uh, related to the book and or unschooling, alternative schooling, and please let me know in the comment section. I will try my best to keep an eye on the comments and to engage in an intellectual conversation with a very smart person. <laughs> and uh, so another one, which is something that I also have lots of questions about, and you talk about, you know, we need for those unconventional schools, and we want to give our children like a significant amount of decision-making power. And I guess for me, coming from a very traditional educational background, and do you ever feel concerned or like about children like abusing their freedom? So one comment immediately jumping to my mind is, what if they play computer games all day long, <laughs> point, right? My son, eight years old, I give him a freedom day. And guess what he did? That entire day, he was playing Minecraft. And the following day, he was like, mommy, my head hurts so much. And so so what's your, what's your uh, explanation, answer to that question? <laughs> freedom? Yeah. Well, there's a few things going on here. First of all, uh, a personal example. I love sugar. I've always loved sugar. And if somebody came into my life and restricted me from eating sugar for six days a week and then said, on day seven, you can eat whatever you want, I would eat a lot of sugar on day seven and I would have a stomach ache. And uh, if I was able to just moderate my own consumption of sugar throughout the days, like I do, then I would eat a little bit here and a little bit there. Maybe I would have some days where I would eat a ton and then I would feel sick and then I would stay away from it for a couple of weeks. And so I think we can all relate to an experience like this. When something is restricted, then it's very easy to go overboard on it. And that is what we do by and large, both in and out of school with young people today in our culture. We give them very little freedom and responsibility. And when we, you know, when they do have a real taste of freedom, like during a summer vacation or when they go away to college, perhaps, then they often go a bit crazy with it. Uh, and so, there's that going on. You mentioned Minecraft and video games, and I spend a lot of time in the book actually defending the utility of complex multiplayer games like Minecraft. I grew up playing a lot of video games and computer games myself, and every once in a while I did think, man, I am really wasting my time doing this. But more often, much more often, I was highly engaged with these games, and they were 
they required massive amounts of critical thinking, problem solving skills, teamwork, uh, and I was learning from these games. And I cite uh, a really wonderful book called Reality is Broken, uh, which mm -hmm. is written by a game designer named Jane McGonigal. And she pulls in a lot of the research and the psychology that shows that there's a lot of positive utility to games. And so when I look at a young person who's given a little bit of freedom and they go and play Minecraft, I don't think they're just off being addicted. They are just wasting their time. I think this kid is probably really hungry for some meaningful engagement and also really hungry to be somewhere where he feels a sense of control because mm -hmm. kids don't have a sense of control in their lives at school and depending on what life is like at home, uh, often they don't have a sense of control either. And a place like Minecraft is where they do have a sense of autonomy, of control, where they can be effective people who contribute to the world. We have prevented young people, especially adolescents who throughout history have made significant contributions to their communities. They've worked, they've held responsibilities. We have said, you are not allowed to do anything useful to anyone aside from this make work homework that we've created for you that only your teacher and maybe one or two other people will see. And everyone knows that we just sort of made it up to keep you busy. That's the situation that young people are in today. And that's why I'm such a strong advocate for getting them out into some sort of more real world situation, whether that's an alternative school or a homeschooling situation where they are given freedom and responsibility or you know, part-time jobs or internships, so apprenticeships. This is stuff that a lot of people intuitively know kids thrive on, but we haven't figured out how to give them these freedoms and responsibilities because it's scary. Yeah, I, I love it, you know, which is so true. I mean, I grew up in China. And so in China, we don't actually have drinking age limit. Uh, so you can pretty much start drinking, I guess, any age you want. And so we never had uh, an alcohol issue. Like even like uh, when I was uh, a college undergraduate student in China, and uh, we have like beers everywhere, but no, you don't ever see kid like like binge drinking. Like it's a common problem in the U.S. Like many of my undergraduates, oh, it's really really bad. So like yeah, I can really understand from that because you know you have been hiding this thing away from the kid for so long, and they build up lots of excitement toward that thing. So next time if I, my own children or other children, anyone watching this live right now, and if you know your children want to play video games all day long, we should just allow that. Or like, is there a, like a limit, like how many hours? I just feel like it's so bad for their eyes, you know, something <laughs> movement. And uh, so is there like, based on your research, is there a, like a, a magic number, how many hours? Like is sure. like after that? Yeah, well, I haven't done research into this, but again, Jane McGonigal, uh, she said in her book that 20 hours a week is a pretty healthy amount of games. That's that's about three hours a day. And she said, okay. once you get up past 40 hours a week, that's when the negative effects often tend to uh, you know, take over. And so that's that's what she says. And for me, I think it really depends on the kid and the family. And I think that some kids can be totally fine, mental health-wise, physical health-wise, playing a lot of games and others that they don't. Obviously, you see them falling apart, and that is when, as, as a parent, yeah, it's really important to encourage them to get off the screens, to go outside. So, and yeah, I've mostly taken young people on outdoor adventures and done stuff that does not involve screens, and so that I'm a big fan of, of non-screen type activities myself. 
Yeah, yeah, like a, a good balance. Yeah, I love that. So, like, continue our conversation on this unconventional school. And again, you know, everyone should check out the book. has a quite a comprehensive list. So another one I want to talk about is a flexible arrival and departure hours. And to me, that's just like wow, eye opening. And even though I know one school in Philadelphia, they actually do this. And I, I want to know kind of at the operational level. So what does that even mean? Like children, they can come to a school like at whatever <laughs> hour they want, and when they like, hey, bye, I'm going back home. How will that help them cultivate a sense of discipline? Well, I think a useful comparison here is what kind of work would we prefer to have as adults? Would you prefer to have a work a job that is very strictly nine to five? Or would you prefer to have a job where it's much more flexible and when you can show up and when you can leave as long as you get your work done? I think that that is the direction that the world is actually moving in, maybe slowly, but I think it's going in that direction. And so for young people who are, well, again, we have to come back to this discussion about what is the actual work that they need to be doing. Uh, in some ways, yes, there is important stuff for young people to be doing, but in other ways, they're really just waiting until adulthood. <laughs> <laughs> because we've said you're not allowed to do anything that's real work until age 18. So let me tell you about a specific place. Uh, there's a place called North Star in Western Massachusetts. And they say that we are a self-directed learning center. We are not a school. And they are tech, legally, they are not a school, but they are a place where teenagers from ages 13 to 18 can come and they can pay to come for one day a week, two days a week, three days a week, or four days a week. North Star is closed on Wednesdays. And they can come, but in each day that they come, they can come whenever they like and leave whenever they like. And at North Star, there is a schedule of classes that are happening. Uh, there are adults there who will be your mentors. There are these clubs, like a, a, there's a great drama group there, but all of it is optional. And so a kid can show up when they want to show up to do the things they want to do and then when they don't want to do anything else or they're feeling tired one day, they can just go home. And mm -hmm. so it's, it, I feel like it's a much more humane way to approach education. And it is ultimately the kind of direction that I think we are headed in the world of work, which is more flexibility. And, uh, and just the fact that right now, so many adults are working from home instead of commuting into work. We're, we have this giant experiment in remote, remote work going on, and I think a lot of people really enjoy the flexibility. And so I, I do think things are going in that direction. Yeah, I, I love it. And uh, in fact, I think that's kind of how I work. You know, I have been working from home for quite a few years, and uh, it's definitely, definitely, yeah, yeah. And in your case of working with, you know, in this uh, alternative education space, so have you ever, like, or... Are there any ever cases of students who skip classes or they all of them are just like intrinsically motivated to come to school every day, you know, collaborating, networking, learning, and or they just, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm just curious, like feel like oh, I don't feel like going. Well, there's lots of kids who don't appear motivated at these alternative schools or if you homeschool your kid in a very self-directed way, which people call unschooling, you will witness firsthand uh, a seemingly unmotivated kid. That's the reality for a lot of families. And it's a very scary thing to walk into because you feel like you are failing at that moment as a parent by letting your kid not do anything. And so mm -hmm. the short answer is yes. Right? But the long answer is that what you're doing is you are encouraging 
your kid to develop their sense of intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. And another way to say it is you are letting them taste what boredom is. Sorry. And boredom is actually a sort of horrible thing. It's, it's just a, a, a waste of your time. This, that's my main problem, my main issue with school is that so many kids are, are forced to stay there and they're bored. So if you let a kid be bored, but you don't say that you, you have to do this, you give them both the freedom and the responsibility, the obligation to figure out their next steps. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you provide a warm, supportive environment where the kid knows that they have resources, that their parents and other adults are there to provide suggestions and inspiration when asked for, when desired. Then that is a a perfect kind of petri dish for intrinsic motivation to bloom. And a lot of these kids, I'd say the overwhelming majority, who seem so unmotivated once they, they stop going to school and they go to this alternative school, it just takes them a little while to then realize there's something that's more interesting for me to do with my life out there instead of sitting here being bored or just scrolling through YouTube or Instagram. And then they figure out what they want to do and they often move towards their goals with extreme speed and efficiency. There are lots of stories of young people who don't touch math for years and years until they realize that, oh, I wanna be an engineer and engineers have to learn the certain level of math. And so they have a reason to do the thing now, to do the hard thing. And so they go and they consume all this math, they use Khan Academy, they find tutors. You know, It's not that hard to actually learn something once you're highly motivated to do it. And they do everything they need to do. They jump through the hoops. And that is, that's the story I share in my book over and over again. It's, it's the same story in different versions. A kid discovers their intrinsic motivation, they, and then they are incredibly powerful as a self-directed mm -hmm. learner. Oh, so true. So true. I mean, like just for myself, you know, when I was uh, very young and uh, my parents always forced me to learn English. I was like, why do I have to learn this foreign language? No interest. But when I turned like 18 years old or so, I wanted to study abroad in the United States. All of a sudden, I was like, you know, like bring me all the classes, the books. I was unstoppable, right? So I, I can really resonate with that. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great point. So is there like, I guess, uh, different children, they kind of reach that point at different ages or is there an, kind of a common age that they will have that, you know, light bulb moment or it just really depends on the kid? I it totally depends on the kid. I think it can be anywhere between ages 10 and 22. Mm. And I think I, I might not be that generous when I say 10. There, there might be younger kids who really figure out what they're into. But in my experience, it typically happens in the teenage years, somewhere between ages 15 and 20. And mm. it gets, it can be a, a nerve wracking experience for a parent who has a 19 year old who seems to have no idea what they want to do. They've been given all this freedom and it seems like they haven't taken advantage of it. And the kid is still living at home. I know many kids like this. Some of them have gone to my programs or I've worked at summer camps with them, but I don't believe, I have no reason to believe that there's some epidemic of failure to launch kids who have been part of the alternative education world or the homeschooling and unschooling world who are just stuck at home because they have no skills, they're unemployable, they have no social skills, they're unsocialized. Like that is what I think a lot of people think might happen to their kid, but it's a very unfounded myth. Uh, mm -hmm. If you give someone freedom, you give them support, and they're in an environment where they have lots of, of options and stimulation, then they're going to find their way sooner or later. 
Oh, totally. I mean, like my my son, I, when he turned seven years old, many of you probably know my story, my children's. And he told us very clearly, mommy, daddy, I don't want to go to school. It is so boring. And so we kind of put him out. And now he's like pretty driven, you know, even like Minecraft. And he also loves drawing, like outdoor play. He is motivated. He's also actually selling stuff on on eBay, I didn't push him to do anything. I just kind of, you know, facilitate as as you mentioned. I've, it's so encouraging as a mom and educator to see the spark in his eyes again. Yeah. So I see people's comments. You know, many of them are still kind of uh, teachers uh, or parents. Their children are still in the traditional space, and they are frustrated, bored. So what are some like uh, solutions? How can we remedy that uh, if we can't? really pull them out of the traditional school system for whatever reasons. So what are some things that we can do at home to excite the kids again, you know, to spark them, stimulate them a little bit? That's a hard question. I think because school occupies so much of a kid's life and attention, and then through extension, uh, it occupies a lot of their time at home through homework. Uh, I think it is a very challenging thing to do, and it's not it's, there's not easy solutions to just say, do this one thing at home three evenings mm -hmm. a week and your kid will feel much more self-directed. So maybe to, to be more helpful than, than that, I'll say, um, you know, side with your kid when it comes to issues of, of unreasonable homework and unreasonable requests by the school. And so you don't always have to be the homework cop. You don't always have to be the one imagining that if an assignment is sent home from school, then you have to enforce it and you have to force your kid to do it. You can be on your kid's side and say, you know what, this is a dumb assignment or this does seem like a waste of your time. I wonder how we can either do this in much, much less time or how we can get around doing this all together. And so, yes, your kid can still be in school, but it can be you and your kid against uh, the more inane homework assignments and, and you know school requirements instead of you know your kid versus the school and then your kid versus you because then that's when kids start to feel helpless that's when you know sure. bad things happen and so true. i mean for most parents to be honest i feel like even when i pick up my children parents always say hey listen to the teacher i feel like parents are always on the same side as the teacher right and then yeah you, you wonder why the kid feels so like nobody's supporting me and uh right. yeah exactly yeah i really love this comment from pam and thank you pam is a dear friend and for joining us live and she mentioned that you know they need to have this before investing the time and money into a college degree it's so true you know get a copy of this book you know having a conversation like this prior you know like preventive is a lot better than you know trying to be reactive you know save fix the damage fix the broken soul so to speak yeah i love it so you have worked with so many uh non-conventional children i wonder if you can share with us what are some of the the differences that you have observed between children who go through this unconventionally educated path to college versus the students, you know, for their entire life, just like middle school, high school, the traditional path mm -hmm. to college. Are there any differences between this, uh, those two groups of students that you have observed? As, as human beings or as college students? As human beings and as students, you know, like what sure. are some really big differences? I'm sure it's very different. Well, 
The first thing I noticed when I went to go work at not back to school camp and I met my first teenage unschoolers, some of whom had never been to school before in their lives, was that they looked me in the eye and they treated me almost like an equal. I was a staff member there and so I'm not a full equal, but there wasn't this automatic teacher-student authority uh, relationship there. And so we could act on a much more um, uh, collegial level and that was a very satisfying thing for me. And, and that I think allowed more authentic relationships between adults and young people to flourish. That's a big thing that I noticed. Um, a second thing that I noticed is that a lot of these teens are really able to speak their minds. They, they don't feel so repressed, it seems. It's like they are really free thinkers and, they, and that translates into free speech. They are, uh, they feel like free people. It's a really inspiring thing to be around. When it comes to college, a number of the stories that I share in my book go something like this. Well, I didn't do anything academic for you know many, many years. And then I decided I wanted to go to college and it took me about six months or 18 months to do all the stuff I needed to get into college. And then when I was there, I assumed because everyone chooses to be here, that everyone's going to be really motivated, really motivated, and that I was going to have to really struggle to keep up, especially since I never went to normal school myself, or I dropped out of normal school at whatever grade. And then they say, it turns out that I became one of the top students in my class because, not because I'm trying extra hard, but because like, I have a clear reason for being here. And like Pam said in the comments, like this discussion happened much earlier for these unconventionally educated young people. They realized that it's not up to anyone but them to make important life choices for themselves. And that includes the choice of going to college. And so when they chose to go to college, when they thought hard about you know, the cost involved and the potential benefits that are gonna come from it, you know, they have probably made a much more informed and, and careful decision than the average 18 year old who is just marching straight into higher education because that's what good kids do. And sometimes it works out, right? It worked out for me. It, it has worked out for many other people who walked blindly into higher education, but the, we also know that it does not work out well for a lot of other young people. They have no clear reason for being there. They're just there because mom, dad, society, and friends tell them they have to be there. They're taking on large amounts of debt to do it, and they end up either dropping out of college and they end up with debt, which is the worst possible situation, or they graduate and they still don't really have a clue about what they want to do. And oh maybe they, yeah, they could have spent that time doing something much more meaningful and relevant to their lives. You're pretty much talking about my life. I work with, I wish I had more unschoolers in my classes. I probably wouldn't resign. But most of my students, they are very, uh, I don't know, it's like really check the box, you know, just like let me get out of there. And when they are uh, selecting classes, they want to find the easiest teacher and just some like multiple choice exams and they can get answer from prior classes. There's no like intrinsic desire to learn, you know, Daniel Pink who gave you an endorsement and he talks about this, you know, mastery, autonomy and the sense of purpose, you know, this inner desire to learn and, you know, a sense of purpose in life. Yeah. I. I love it. Yeah, that makes so much sense. They are like, wow, outperforming all those other kids without even trying. I love stories like that. Very cool. Yeah. So another like kind of really common question, because I do talk to parents a lot, and they say that, oh, you know, 
no school, no degree, and uh, how about finding a job? You know, am I prepared? Am I preparing my children for the real life, for the real world? Are they going to even have the financial means to take care of themselves? So I'm sure you have heard similar questions quite a lot. And so how would you answer a question like that? <laughs> the whole second chapter of my book is dedicated to that question, in fact. And so there's two answers to that question. The first one is, a lot of college, excuse me, a lot of jobs today do require way, sorry, I have been sharing Blake's, the link to Blake's book in the on the screen. So everyone feel free. Yes, <laughs> yes, so oh, sorry. So, so a lot of jobs do require college degrees. That's a reality and it has to do with licensing requirements. And, uh, and so one answer to the question is, um, can these kids still get into college if they don't go through conventional school? And that, that's what I wrote my whole first book about, college without high school. The answer is yes. They can do it, they have done it, and they do it all the time. And it's just slightly more complex to do it, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily more difficult to do it than going through the traditional route. And so if they can get into college, that means they can get college degrees. And the research says that there is no difference between homeschoolers and regular high school students when it comes to college performance. So homeschoolers aren't underprepared and drop out in droves. And so if they can get college degrees, then Yes, they can get jobs that require college degrees. They're just going to be competing with everyone else who has a college degree, and no one's going to ask them about their K through 12 upbringing. Now, for parents who are concerned that maybe their kid won't go to college and won't be able to find a job, in the United States, there are lots of different ways to get the equivalent of a high school diploma. Now, there's the GED. There are some states that have high school equivalency exams, and there's community college. And so the United States has done a really excellent job of creating all these different ways for someone to get the credential they need to get hired into their first job. And then from there, as most of us know, it's more about your references and your referrals than it is about your credential. And so, yes, young people who choose not to go to college and have not gone through regular high school, they, they don't face serious burdens, at least in the U.S., to getting into um, their first job. And in other countries, it is it is more difficult. It's also more difficult to get into the university system. And so as I've learned that over the years, I've become more and more thankful about the flexibility that we have here in the U.S. Yeah, I, I so agree. I so agree. And uh, in your book, you also talk about, you know, how about those children who are interested in going to an elite, you know, Ivy League school? So will the unconventional path prepare them actually to go to a really uh, elite uh, college or university. I quote uh, a guy named Antonio Bueller, who runs a small alternative school in Austin, Texas, in that chapter. And Antonio writes about this component that colleges look for. He spent some time interviewing uh, uh, students who were trying to get into Stanford, because he went to Stanford himself. And he said that the really crucial ingredient that matters for these students is something called intellectual vitality. I love that, yes. Right? And that means like a real genuine intrinsically motivated passion or interest, you know, some sort of clear intellectual uh, thing that is coming from the student and not just because they're trying to look really impressive. And mm -hmm. so that is how, uh, let's say, a, a very intellectually oriented young person who is given free reign to take over their education when they're young, 
if they are allowed to go really deep into these topics that interest them, these academic subjects that interest them, then they are essentially permitted to accumulate all of this experience while their other you know, peers are sitting in classes. And yes, those other peers are probably going to AP classes and honors classes, and that's all you know, important stuff for, for colleges, but being able to stand out from the crowd and not just look like every other high school graduate who has great A's, it can be a very powerful thing. And, and that is what t tends to happen with these unschooled or highly alternatively schooled kids who end up going to highly selective colleges. They've invested time with the support of their parents in doing something that is really impressive, but not they're not doing it because it's impressive. They're doing it because it's interesting and colleges can figure that out. Exactly, you know, learning for the sake of learning. And based on what you shared, I was thinking about my, my experience in South Korea. So the last three years we were actually in South Korea and uh, it's so common. So one mom told us, and for many students in Korea, not only do they go to so many prep classes from like Monday to Saturday to Sunday, from 8 a.m. to like 10 p.m. Not only that, but there are lots of college prep classes, you know, preparing students for elite university in the United States. And guess how young do they start? Like second grade, second grade. <laughs> They are thinking about going to like Stanford, you know, Berkeley, all those schools, and they have a checklist. They have a checklist, and for for the for the coach to help the kid, you know, check check. When the mom told me that, I was like, I can't believe that. And she told me, don't laugh. Those classes are so popular, and many parents go to another prep class to get into a class like that. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> you have to I prepare for the prep classes. Before. <laughs> it was it was so crazy, it was so crazy. But at the same time, I just uh, saw the article like because the the intense academic pressure, the suicide rate for young children is going is really high. If you guys Google South Korea, it's really really high. I mean, like I feel so bad for those children here. Yeah. So I want to kind of shift our per, uh, conversation a little bit. Many people join us live are actually parents, and they have their own children. And I wonder, you actually have a chapter on this. How should parents show up? You know, how should we do parenting in the 21st century? I think, personally speaking, it is getting hotter and hotter. There are so many books. You know, I'm an educator myself. I sometimes I don't know what to do. You know, mixed, conflicting opinions, and so so enlighten us. Well, I don't know about <laughs> enlightenment, but I'll give it my best shot. So yeah, there, there are about 80,000 parenting books on Amazon uh, the last time I checked. And this reflects our current era of what sociologists call intensive parenting. And that is the current accepted model of, of what a good parent should be. And it means being highly involved with your kids' education and their home lives, often micromanaging them to ensure that they are meeting their goals. It looks a lot like what a boss would do with their employee. And what I recommend in the book is that instead of thinking of your kid as your employee who you need to motivate and incentivize, instead, think of yourself as a business consultant. A business consultant does have more expertise, more experience and knowledge than the business who, that she is consulting. And she will give her advice and hopefully be very honest and direct and say, I think this is probably, you know, once I get to know you, now that I know you, this is probably the best course of action for you. 
But then if the business chooses to take that course of action or not, if the business fails or succeeds, the business coach doesn't feel like it's her fault if any of those outcomes happen because she did her best, she gave her advice, but fundamentally it's someone else's business. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, as a parent, of course, you know, we wanna love our kids. We want them to turn out the best that they possibly can, but fundamentally they are their own people. They are not extensions of us. They are not vehicles through which, you know, parents can achieve their own dreams. And that is the hard message that, that I try to deliver. And I, I do it based on a lot of science. I'm not a parent yet myself. And so I recognize that I am missing, you know, a, a fairly core experience <laughs> before I start talking about parenting. But I have dive, I did dive into a lot of the research and literature around parenting. And one book that I talk about extensively in mine is called The Nurture Assumption. And that is the book, if you want to kind of have your mind blown about parenting and, and understand why you have much less control than you think you do over the outcomes in your kid's life, read The Nurture Assumption. I'm going to uh, Google this myself after the show. And uh, so I, I love that. And you are a pioneer in self-directed learning. So as a parent, how can we, right now everyone's doing homeschooling. So how can we apply that at home and to help our children to guide them to do more self-directed learning? You mean right now during the pandemic? Yeah. When no yeah. to go to school? Schooling and many parents I talk to, they feel uh, the pressure to teach their children everything. But I feel like that's not our job to teach our children everything, but to really facilitate them to engage in self-directed learning. So mm -hmm. but you are a much better expert on this than me. So I wonder if you can give us some practical advice uh, in terms of implementing self-directed learning right now, given that is something that everyone's thinking about. Sure, I'd say that if the schoolwork that your kid has to do is flexible, if your school has dropped grades and they're just doing pass, no pass now, or if the school has said, everything is optional for the rest of the year, you don't actually have to do any of this, then take advantage of it. Give your kid as much time to be self-directed as possible. And initially it's going to feel like, you know, summer vacation just started early and you might feel like an irresponsible parent for doing that. But I think there's a better way to look at it. Um, in the book, I write about three metrics for assessing whether school is working for your kid or not. And those are engagement, boredom and stress. And mm -hmm. essentially you want your kid to be in an environment where they feel highly engaged, where they don't feel bored very often and where their stress levels are of the positive variety, which means like, you know, imagine if you sign up for a school play as a kid and you're really excited about it, but you're really nervous and you get a bit stressed out about it. That's a positive variety of stress. But the variety that kids often experience in school uh, is more of the toxic stress variety. And that's when a kid just feels constantly overwhelmed. They have no, they have no idea why they are doing uh, these assignments and it just keeps piling up. And that's what leads to really bad mental health issues. And so no matter what's going on for your kid right now, you know, just think about, are they engaged? Are they bored? And are they stressed out? And just follow your kid's lead and, and follow them wherever it may take you. And sometimes it might take you to Minecraft like a kid might be genuinely engaged, never bored, 
and stressed only because you know his Minecraft team ha is trying to do something. I don't play Minecraft, so I'm a bit out of my element here. But maybe you know they're trying to meet some big goal. Um, it's like the game World of Warcraft. The reason that kids love World of Warcraft is because when you finish a quest, your reward is not the end of the game. Your reward is a more difficult quest. That's mm -hmm. what you want your kid to be doing. And I'm just talking about video games and computer games because they're a pretty easy example. We could be talking about lots of other things in life that have nothing to do with games or screens. If your kid is engaged, not bored, and stressed out in the positive way, but not in the negative way, then that's the direction to go. Follow the kid. Yeah, I love it. I mean, like, my son is really into Minecraft. He has been building those, like, uh, buildings, uh, you know, American buildings and Chinese buildings and the buildings he saw in Korea was really quite elaborate. And he even added my own logo to his Minecraft creation. Very creative. And he has a team definitely talking about collaboration. I love it. I mean, oh, by the way, I just shared the book earlier that you, men uh, you mentioned, Nurture Assumptions. Everyone, I'm going to share the link in the comment section as well. Any uh, additional, besides your book, any additional resources that you think parents, for those who are more open-minded, they want to learn more about this that you can share with us, like website or maybe even Facebook groups or different places that we should keep an eye on? There's so much out there. Let me just share one resource with everyone, and that is the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, which is a nonprofit that was started by Peter Gray, who wrote a really excellent book called Free to Learn. He's also a very popular speaker on the topic of self-directed education. And the Alliance for Self-Directed Education has done a good job of creating a centralized place where you can find these schools, these very alternative schools, where you can find homeschooling groups, and they have a lot of good content out there. I've published for their online magazine a number of times. And that's a good place to start. And it, it's, it's a wide open group. And so you can find lots of different types of schools and centers and communities there. Well, awesome. I say out school. And I will be teaching at out school soon. And my son also loves out school. So yeah, definitely. I will uh, share this uh, link uh, in the comment section. Thank you so much for sharing. And uh, so any parting piece of advice you want to share with us? And by the way, I have been sharing the book. So I guess that's the place you guys can go to get a copy of the book. And uh, so where can people stay in touch with you? And any parting piece of advice <laughs> you want to share with us regarding you know, parenting, alternative learning, homeschooling, unschooling? Yeah. Sure. I'll talk about where you can find me first, and then I'll finish with the, the final piece of advice. Yeah, BlakeBolt.com, a few things to know about uh, me and my work. This is my fourth book. It's officially coming out on May 15th. And I've got a podcast called Off Trail Learning. And I have a lot of fun recording long form interviews with educators and young people and parents. And uh, yeah, that's definitely worth your time to check out. I also have a monthly newsletter where I share the favorite links that have come across my Google Chrome screen in the past 30 days. And for the final advice, something I write in the book is that I really encourage parents not to get too attached to any one form of education. There's a tendency when some parents get into this alternative education world to feel like you found the answer. It's like you discover Sudbury schools, which are these really cool schools that are fully age mixed and they have no required curriculum and they're democratic. And so your kid is gaining citizenship skills. And a lot of parents, and I felt like this too when I was age 20 and I discovered these books, 
uh, a lot of parents say, Sudbury schools, that's the way to go. I have to get my kid into one. And maybe you find a school and you send your kid there and your kid thrives there for a while. And then after a number of years, their needs changed. They, they are a different person. They have developed. Maybe the social needs that they had are now transformed and they want to get really deep into one subject and going to that Sudbury school is not the best choice for them anymore. And so I encourage readers to remain pretty undogmatic when it comes to educational options. And that includes going, sending your kid back to conventional school. If conventional school, public or private, does seem like a good fit for your kid's needs, interests, et cetera, at this moment. And a lot of kids end up going through a lot of different options in their 12 years of K through 12. Uh, sometimes they'll be going to a very conventional school, sometimes an alternative school, sometimes homeschooling. The idea, again, is to follow the kid, follow what they need, you know, develop your really great one-on-one -on -one loving connection with them as a parent, and that is what will inform your next move when it comes to education. I love this. You know, I think as parents, we have to be open-minded enough and to really practice, you know, children-centered education or parenting and to really you know what do my children want and then guide them and facilitate that so yeah really really powerful now married to a particular format yeah that's great thank you so much everyone and i can't wait to re-watch this uh show myself and everyone feel free to check out the book and uh, connect with Blake on social media i think uh you are mostly active on facebook so let me share yeah, so that's the Facebook uh, handle. Feel free to connect with him and tell him how much you love his book and uh, enjoy our interview. And thank you so much to the live audience for joining us live. I can't wait to actually read your comments after I finish the show. And really appreciate everyone. Thank you so much again. And uh, have a great Friday and a great weekend. I hope to see you guys next Friday, same time, same location. Bye.